Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Samuel Adams Returns. Those anti-federalists, boy, I'll tell you what, they had foresight. And what they saw was potentials for what we are experiencing this very day. This is Tom Novolis, your host, and I'm delighted that you are back with me with this program. And today we are going to get into uh, a topic that hasn't been discussed probably in several years, but is uh, at the forefront of a number of emails that I've been receiving over the last week plus. And a lot of that has to do with the World Health Organization and a uh, series of amendment changes to the World Health Organization, WHO's constitution, in relationship to global pandemics and so on and so forth. Now, I have seen and looked at uh, numerous articles from not only uh, the patriot media, if you will, but also comments by some congressmen out there. So what I thought I would do today is take the time to review with you treaties and international executive agreements, or better known as executive agreements. So in doing so, I would highly recommend that uh, on the first order, if you would, but you most, I don't know if you will or not, but I would suggest that you go out and you could either go to the website, samueladamsreturns.net, and you could take and order my book from what? Covenant to the Present Constitution. You can also find that on Amazon and you can order it on Amazon that way. But if you go to samueladamsreturns.net, and you send me an email, um, you can buy the book directly from me, and I'll even sign it for you if you wanted me to. But the reason I'm recommending that is not to sell books. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't promote a lot of the various books or videos or any of that that I, that I have. Uh, probably bad on me. That's why we don't get a lot of financial support here, except for the couple folks that do. But the reason that I wrote that book in particular was to take and help people understand that our Constitution is covenantal. It's not a uh, societal, cultural, or any other type of uh, pack or or document in the way that so many others want to uh, describe it. But no, it is a covenant. And that's first and foremost that you need to understand that, and that's what I bring out. But more importantly, what I want to do is talk about uh, the chapter that I have uh, there. It is on what of international executive agreements. I talk about treaties in the book as well, and I go through from the slide presentation that I have done uh, on the book. And so this is all the way into slide 70, 69, 70, 71, when it comes to talking about treaties and international 
executive agreements or better known as executive agreements. If you go to the references uh, for this week's newsletter, again, it's samueladamsreturns.net, you'll see all the other documentation. I only put in like maybe 11 uh, different references for this specific topic because it's, it is critical. And what's frustrating for me is once again that our political leaders, the uh, patriot news media, uh, even congressmen have taken in, uh, again, sensationalized and emotionalized this whole area around the World Health Organization and and these changes that are in for proposal uh, to amend their constitution. And you're going, World Health Organization has a constitution? Well, yes, it does. There's a references in there for you to take a look at, is that it is a part of the United Nations. It's chapter 9, I believe, and health on the various treaties in the United Nations, and we're signed on to it. So, The first thing to understand is that we have a lot of treaties. And just uh, to talk about that for a moment before I jump into the chapter on the book, I think it's critical for you to understand the uh, foreign entanglements. So in one of the references that I have in Justia, J-U-S-T-I-A dot com, it's a law journal that I subscribe to in that, is that let's look at just the treaties alone. So the treaties during the first half century of independence, the United States was party to 60 treaties, but to only 27 published executive agreements. So right there, there were executive agreements that were going into effect in the first half century of this nation. Then, uh, by the beginning of World War II, there had been concluded approximately 800 treaties and 1,200 executive agreements. Interesting. So, executive agreements and treaties, and we'll get into what they are here in, in during the program, because quite frankly, and honestly, just to make the point for you, executive agreements become the law of the land, no different than treaties. The only difference is they don't have to go through senatorial advice and consent. Some do. And we'll talk about the differences because there's three different types of executive agreements that are uh, out there and how they function and all of that. So you need to understand that. Then in the period between 1940 and 1989, the nation entered into 759 treaties and into 13,016 published executive agreements. Now you have to understand there are some secret executive agreements that are only titled, like the Yalta Agreement, which 
We don't know the full context of the Yalta Agreement that Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, entered into with Stalin at that time. And some of that is still how we are playing out with Russia. Interesting. Now, cumulatively, in 1989, the United States was party to a total of about 890 treaties and then another 5,117 executive agreements. So to phrase it comparatively, in the first 50 years of the history of the United States concluded twice as many treaties as executive agreements in the 50-year period from 1839 to 1889, executive agreements and treaties were concluded, uh, and to almost twice as many executive agreements and treaties were concluded. Between 1939 and 1993, executive agreements compromised more than 90% of the international agreements concluded. And when you start looking at these in detail, uh, you're sitting here going, what, how, what happened? How did it happen? How could it happen that we're in more executive agreements that do not require the Senate to participate? And why are we in the mess we're in? as far as foreign policy in particular? Why are we seeing the erosion of our various liberties? Or why are we seeing this internationalism occurring in different ways? Maybe we need to go back to some of not just the treaties, but the executive agreements. So with that, uh, and before we jump through all of it more, let me tell you that uh, there is a link at samueladamsreturns.net for today's program, and uh, there I have the treaties in force right now. Now, that, that's about uh, 570 pages of just the titles of the treaties and the executive agreements as well. So these are bilateral treaties and executive agreements. And for instance, when you go into it, here's one in, in particular. And, and you have to look at, and you have to go into the details to find out if uh, any of these treaties, when do they sunset? And then what is the financial cost, the financial burden to the American people? About 10 years ago, I did start a spreadsheet of it. And quite frankly, uh, it is hundreds of billions of dollars that we are on the hook for. Um, hundreds of billions, probably closer to a trillion now, especially with what's been going on, Afghanistan and all of that. But just to give you an example, and then we're going to get into the details of what these are all about in the second and third segment. But I want to hit you with the, the example that's not just the World Health Organization on these various areas. But let's look at Afghanistan and the debacle of Afghanistan alone. And what we're seeing here is that there are treaties 
on cultural exchange, property, and cooperation. Agreements relating to the exchange of official publications. Agreement concerning cultural relations. Agreement relating to the establishment of a Peace Corps program in Afghanistan. Now, when I start looking at these, I don't see a sunset for these agreements. So, in principle, these agreements are still treaty or agreements with Afghanistan. Defense, here's the big one, defense. Agreement relating to the deposit by Afghanistan of 10% of the value of grant military assistance furnished by the United States. Enduring strategic partnership agreement. It entered into force in, what, July 4th of 2012, of all things. Acquisition agreement with annexes. Acquisition and cross-servicing agreement with annexes. Security and defense cooperation agreement with annexes. Agreement regarding the Foreign Assistance Act of 1961 or successor legislation, including international military education and training. Peacekeeping operations, which we blew out of that, so this section may be defunct, but I have not seen anything new around it. And this went into effect in uh, 2018, so that was during the Trump administration. So, uh, you know, you could do the homework and find out if that one got blown out. But here's a big one, too. On finance in Afghanistan alone, investment incentive agreement with an appendix, 2004, agreement regarding the consolidation and rescheduling of debts owed to, guaranteed by, or insured by the United States government or its agencies, 2007, agreement regarding the reduction of certain debts owed to, guaranteed by, or insured by the United States or its agencies, agreement regarding reduction of certain debt owed to United States by the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. And it goes into foreign assistance and on and on and on, just for Afghanistan. Ladies and gentlemen, George Washington said to be wary and not to get involved in international entanglements. There are so many that argued, oh, we, we needed to do these things. No, we did not. And we're going to go into the history of the executive agreements, in particular in the next couple of segments, and it's going to shock some of you as to what happened back in the 50s. Come on back to next segment of Samuel Adams Returns, because the Anti-Federalists got it right. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the second segment of Samuel Adams Returns. Those Anti-Federalists got it right. I took you through some of an example of uh, Afghanistan, the treaties, and different agreements uh, in that first segment. But what I'd like to do now is take you back in uh, history a bit in relationship to what are uh, the executive agreements. And to do so, I'd just like to simply take you back to my book. And in there, I, I define it very simply in that international executive agreements, an executive agreement is an agreement between the United States and a foreign government that is less formal 
than a treaty and not subject to constitutional requirement for ratification by two-thirds of the U.S. Senate. The Constitution of the United States does not specifically give the president the power to conclude executive agreements. However, he may be authorized to do so by Congress, or he may do so on the basis of a power granted to him to conduct foreign relations. Despite the question about constitutionality of executive agreements, in 1937, the Supreme Court ruled that they had the same force as treaties. You have to understand that. Because executive agreements are made on the authority of the incumbent president, they do not necessarily bind his successor. So when we get into what did Pompeo do during the Trump administration to get us out of these entanglements, very little, very little. In fact, we entered into a whole bunch more agreements, executive agreements, let alone treaties. Let me continue here, because this is just simply out of the Encyclopedia Britannica that I put there into the book for you. Most executive agreements have been made pursuant to a treaty or to an act of Congress. Sometimes, however, presidents have concluded executive agreements to achieve purposes that would not command the support of two-thirds of the Senate. For example, after the breakout of World War II, before America entry into the conflict, President Roosevelt negotiated an executive agreement that gave the United Kingdom 50 overage destroyers in exchange for a 99-year lease on certain British naval bases in the Atlantic. What a deal, huh? Let's see. So when we look at what it just said here by definition— uh, let's go into what we get from the State Department Manual uh, 11 FAM 721.2. There are two procedures under domestic law through which the United States becomes party to international agreement. First, international agreements, regardless of their title, designation, or form, whose entry into force with respect to the United States takes place only after two-thirds of the Senate has given its advice and consent under Article 2, Section 2. Two of the Constitution are treaties, so that's a treaty. Second, international agreements brought into force with respect to the United States on constitutional basis, other than with the advice and consent of the Senate, are international agreements other than treaties and are often referred to as executive agreements. There's a difference. So I've gone through this in detail. Now, in relationship to all the documentation that I have in here for you in these pages, and I'm actually giving you the pages if you go to samueladamsreturns.net, uh, there's a link to this section, and you can download the PDF in relationship to this. But what I wanted to take you to is something that Joe Biden was involved in and received information on when he was in the Senate. 
as part of the 106th Congress, second session. There was a study group that was prepared, and the title of it is Treaties and Other International Agreements, the Role of the United States Senate. So they're trying to define, the Senate asked the question, what is their role in dealing with treaties and international agreements? So this was prepared for the Committee on Foreign Relations of the United States Senate by the Congressional Research Service Library. Those that were on this um, committee at the time, uh, the Jesse Helms was the chairperson. First name that's on the left-hand side is Joseph R. Biden. He received this uh, report, which is like 379 pages, very historically laid out, very in-depth. And I'm going to take you through only a couple of it, because, uh, ideas that are in here, because the question comes to what is it? And that Biden and his staff and the people in the legislature understand these and use them for their power mongering. And quite honestly, this will be a shock to my dad, is that Dwight D. Eisenhower is the one that stopped Congress from taking this power away from the presidency and keeping it in more control of the Congress. Eisenhower did this, and I'll talk about that within the next two segments. But let me get into this whole section on, on what this means without even uh, going into all the details. But like here is the historical background and growth of international agreements is on page 27 of this what, 379-page uh, report. But when I drive on down to through the table of contents is very deep. It's about, uh, uh, let's see, six pages in itself, is that the whole study uh, was from a point that it's uh, reporting on what does it mean for these international agreements into Congress. Now, treaties are serious, you know, and the internationally, once they're enforced, treaties are binding on the parties that become part of international law. Now, domestically, treaties to which the United States are party are equivalent in status to federal legislation. That's why it says they become the law of the land. That's what the Constitution says. Treaties become law of the land. Now, what we also go through, and we need to understand very clear, is that under international law, uh, treaties uh, become effect immediately in the United States, and that's what it means is a treaty is international law. That's how internationals look at it. In the United States, the word treaty is reserved for an agreement that is made by and with the advice and consent of the, cons the Senate. Now, international agreements not submitted to the Senate are known as executive agreements in the United States, but are considered treaties and therefore binding under international law. You see? Who's defining what they're all about? Many agreements, and we have to understand here, is that presidents have increasingly concluded, as we saw from the example that I mentioned earlier in the first program, how often they've been used, 
They continue to do that. Many agreements are previously authorized or specifically approved by legislation. And such congressional executive or statutory agreements have been treated almost interchangeably with treaties in several important court cases. Others, often referred to as sole executive agreements, are made pursuant to inherent powers claimed by the president under Article 2 of the Constitution. I explained that earlier as well. So neither the Senate nor Congress as a whole is involved in concluding the sole executive agreements, and their status is domestic law is not fully resolved. So it's real questionable. There's still debate out there, but there's no attorneys that really argue it to any extent as to if the president makes these agreements, international agreements in particular, that are they really binding on we the people? So the question on these uh, the use of treaties, congressional executive agreements, and sole executive agreements underline many issues. Therefore, the study, the Senate role in a treaty, must also deal with executive agreements. Moreover, the President, the Senate, and the House of Representatives have different institutional interests at stake. Always, who's interested in what, for what reason? So in the House, the, so what the, what's their share? You know, the common share of interest in making international agreements that are in the national interest in most effect and efficient manner as possible. So that's what it should drive to. But from many international agreements that are not submitted for its content, you have to understand that. Let's see. Presidents have made important commitments that they consider politically binding but not legally binding. But somebody picks up on that. So let me give you one example that I use in the book in particular is that what we have in Agenda 21, now Agenda 2030, now, you know, uh, all this environmental wacko stuff that's going on, uh, the Paris uh, agreements and so on and so forth that were entered back into, you know, Trump, if he gets elected as president in 2024, can pull out of Paris again. Unfortunately, a lot of it's been codified, which happens way too often, as we're learning in this document and report alone. But Agenda 21 was signed on by who? The first, President Bush. Yeah, it was Republican President Bush that signed on to UN Agenda 21. I've spoken about that numerous times. And then it was Bill Clinton that put the first dollars to it in a study group. And then it was Nancy Pelosi as a young congresswoman that actually moved it forward for full funding. So you have to understand sustainability, Agenda 21, and all of this stuff was during the Bush 1 signing on to it as an executive agreement under the UN Treaty, and then it got funded through Bill Clinton, Nancy Pelosi, and Congress has been funding it ever since. Wow. You see? This is, this, this is the travesty. That's why in, in the uh, newsletter, I call it the evil, because it's evil the way this has been used. 
Let me go through this document. Just a couple more real quick things um, is that uh, the idea that the uh, function of the Senate was to both to protect the rights of the states and to serve as a check against presidents taking excessive or undesirable actions through treaties. It kind of, should be that way also with executive agreements. But a lot of times these guys sign on to stuff. Just think about it. Hey, you got McConnell's wife whose father is intimately tied to finance and that in the Communist Chinese Party. So where is the self-interest? Where is it to protect the states? And we well know that the Senate does not function to protect the states. That's a 17th Amendment thing that you know, I won't get into today. So it gets to that point. Congress does not ratify treaties. The president does the ratification based on his signature. The Senate should participate in treaties. And you have to understand that if there's legislative or committee agreement within the Congress, the House, or and or the Senate towards an administrative agreement, you got to look at who you're electing, folks. What is going on there? Sam Adams knew that there would always be the potentials for this Constitution becoming what it has become because we don't have moral leadership anymore. I'll touch on that briefly uh, in the next segment. But, you know, one of the things I want to leave you with is that, hey, America, we deserve what we are getting. And the bottom line is that is we're a sinful nation. And until we repent individually and as a nation, guess what? There is God's judgment. Once again, Sam Adams knew that. A number of the anti-federalists did as well. So come on back for the third segment as we close it out. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to this last segment of Samuel Adams' Returns. And I would love to be able to have hours to talk to you about this. I do hope that somebody else will pick it up and be able to bring this to a greater national type of conversation. Because what we have going on right now with this uh, Ukrainian insanity, uh, Russia, China, all of these uh, components that are moving internationally are old news in so many different ways, but they're fresh because we have allowed it to happen. Our elected allowed it to happen. And quite frankly, we uh, have given into uh, abuses of power legally. By all means, legally, we have abuses of power. So we're seeing that the Biden administration, uh, which is actually being run by Susan Rice, and remember who Susan Rice was under the uh, O'Biden, I mean the Obama administration. And so we know that, you know, old Joe is just flowing with what it is that is going on from that direction. Even when we look at the um, whole thing on diversity, equity, inclusion, and all of that from its international basis, go look at what executive agreements have been uh, signed on to. Look at how they're being funded 
uh, by taxpayer dollars. Look at that process and you understand that, you'll, you well, you may or may not understand that the internationalism that everybody, uh, at least those that understand constitutionalism, have been saying, whoa, time out, has been in place for over a century. Now, there are a number of the references that are there at samueladamsreturns.net for today's program. And uh, the one that goes back into the 40s is titled as, Shall the Executive Agreement Replace the Treaty? Very interesting. You know, at that point in time, he was talking about here, just as a, once again, a kind of a summary of what we heard before, is that uh, the uh, advocates of a change point out of some 1,300 executive agreements have been concluded during our national history as contrasted with some 900 treaties. It is not mentioned, however, that up until 1928, only 15 treaties had been rejected by the Senate, usually for good reasons. The 47 were not acted upon, and that while some 160 treaties have been amended by the Senate, in most cases the changes have benefited the nation. And then it goes on to talk about this. And this was written back in like 1941. And then there were further arguments in relationship to it, uh, questions about what are the separations of powers. Those links are there for you to read these documents. I mean, they average maybe 100, you know, 25, 30 to 100 pages. Um, but there was an argument to stop all of this, especially after World War II, um, as I mentioned in one of the last segments about the Yalta Agreement, that was agreement bef between FDR and, um, at that time, Stalin and uh, that other fellow there from England, yeah, you know, the portly guy. <laughs> I leave that for you to have fun with. I do these things on purpose so that you have to think about that history. But the Yalta Agreement has been maintained portions of it secret. So we don't know what else we're tied into with Russia or even England, as a matter of fact, from that agreement. But, but in the 50s, there was a senator from Ohio by the name of Bricker that was proposing an amendment that would stop and put a halt to the way that international agreements were being done. 1954, the Senate nearly passed. It was one vote away from passing a constitutional amendment to curtail the president's authority to make international agreements. 1954. But President Dwight D. Eisenhower avoided a major foreign policy loss thanks to an unusual ally. That was Lyndon Baines Johnson, who Eisenhower called upon to help defeat something that would have protected, more protected our liberties. Amazing. It was amazing what occurred 
just to take this back a little bit further, before Eisenhower, you got to go back to Truman and what was going on. So first off, you had what was going on with Yalta and all of that. Harry Truman favored the strong executive. And in 52, uh, his 1952 seizure, grasping, taking hold of U.S. steel mills and his actions in Korea seemed to justify conservative apprehensions. In the latter case, Truman argued repeatedly that the United Nations Charter was a treaty he had the duty to execute and whose authority obviated the need to consult Congress for a declaration of war. So if Truman could invoke the charter to justify a measure as serious as deployment of American troops abroad, many conservatives wondered, what else would he do? What, 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 what else could happen? So at that time, when they were looking at what was going on in the 40s and 50s, and then it was at that time that Franklin S. Holman, who laid the groundwork, and he was a real conservative in the American Bar Association, laid the ground with, with what would be called now the Bricker Amendment. And the Bricker Amendment was, in fact, to put parameters, parentheses, control mechanisms on this whole idea of a, the presidency just going out and doing exactly what Truman did. Now, this whole dispute actually goes back to about 1913 when Congress passed measures establishing federal regulations over the killing, capturing, or selling of birds. This was a dispute back then. The federal courts ruled the usurpation of rights reserved to the states under the Tenth Amendment. So we're going back and trying to understand the depth of this. But what happened was, is that Eisenhower wanted this power. He wanted to be able to take and conduct foreign policy the way he wanted to without having the constraints of the Constitution or Congress. So it was a battlefront that went into play, especially in 1954. So what were the fears of the executive agreements or everything that I was talking about relative that happened back in World War II? What's happening now and today? What's going on with the WHO changes to the constitution of the WHO that potentially sets up the World Health Organization. But one of the things I put in the newsletter, you have to understand, here's a caveat, is that there's a shall agree to or not agree to that is in there for countries to agree to or not agree to letting the UN do things. So it all depends on who we're going to have as president and who we're going to have as Congress, Senate, even the courts, because the courts play a big part in all of this. That's why I said, I wish I had a lot of time to talk about this. I don't. And probably you get bored with me talking about it because, look, the real fact of the matter is I, I'm bringing this to you and what's going on. I'm talking to you about these truths. But what are you going to do with it? What can you do with it? 
That's a dilemma, isn't it? Uh, so let me get away. and let, let, let me just tell you that what you need to do is you need to go read these references for yourself. And the two that I'm uh, on here right now with is from the Council of Foreign Relationships on TWE Remembers the Bricker Amendment. And it gets into a lot of these details. And then it gets into the details of uh, the, the fact that uh, Eisenhower goes and gets a hold of Lyndon Johnson to help him defeat by one vote defeat this amendment to the Constitution to control the power of the presidency in making international agreements. And then you have to remember that Biden received in 2020 all of the information and instructions on how to use it. <laughs> I just, but you don't know all that. Does it really matter in your life? Do you care? Or was the Super Bowl more important? Or now basketball or baseball? I, I, I sit here a little bit frustrated with my exuberance in asking the questions. And the reason of that being is that this information has been out there. And once again, you have not been informed by either our educational system. It has been removed out of the context of history, unless those are specific that are going to any higher education, being the corrupt university system, who are producing nothing but Congress. Or I said <laughs> Congress? Communist. How about communist? That's what they're producing. Actually, they're producing international slaves, mindless minions to bow down to their uh, ESG or DEI or environmentalism or all of the worship of everything, except, as I said, I'd bring up, except of the God of our very foundation. So that's what's uh, going on out there is uh, what can you do about it? There's a lot of good clubs. There's a lot of good uh, folks that are spending time and effort trying to look at, you know, how do we deal with all that is in front of us. Well, Sam Adams said a lot of it we have to deal with uh, locally. We look at what's going on in Northeast Ohio, and uh, the Noaka issue is the child of George Bush and Agenda 21, and is destructive to our liberties and our property. There's several people that are out there, as I've mentioned in other programs, that are fighting that, but not enough. The local politicians don't give a flying you know, owl's uh, ear about what's going on with that or the intent to do anything. When it comes down to local county government, even into your townships, your cities, who are the people that you elect? What are their backgrounds? And then who is it that they find as a final authority? That's the real question. That's a real question when we're taking and we're trying to develop candidates. All of this other stuff is informative. It's nice. It's even noise. When all the emotionalism that's going on out there, that's what people prefer to get caught up in. Remember the hurrahs of what? A satanic show on TV stuff as well as even at a Super Bowl halftime, what is it 
that grabs your whole mind and soul that involves your spirit? Where is your allegiance? I may be talking to the choir here. But in the last minute, what is it that you can do? Biggest thing you can do is you can get your church to repent. If you really want to see uh, a revival, it has to start with you and your local congregation. They need to understand that God is sovereign over everything. I've talked about sovereignty. It's not about our sovereignty as a nation. That's what everybody's ballyhooing about in relationship to this World Health Organization uh, charter change. No, it's not just about our sovereignty as a nation. It's who is sovereign. And until we absolutely recognize that God is sovereign even over our leaders, and they recognize that they have to rule according to his sovereignty, well, then we deserve what we get. We got everything we've asked for. Sam Adams knew that. So did the Anti-Federalists. So we pray that you get your sovereignty set correctly. See you next week.